Welcome back, everybody, to Play Only Date Monsters, the podcast where queer theory meets queer thirst. I'm noted monster fucker Lunastopheles. And I'm festive monster fucker Hayden. Oh, I love a good festive monster, especially if they have horns, because then you can, like, hang ornaments and stuff on them. Just little bits of tinsel. If they say yes, and, you know, if you ask nicely, they probably will. Mm. Little bits of tinsel, as you said. Garland, perhaps. <laughs> if you're getting really fancy, get some lights. Just hang a chunk of mistletoe on one of those horns. Yep, that invasive species. Mm-hmm. About non-consensual kissing. Travis and Teresa McElroy do a podcast about manners called Schmanners, and yes. their most recent one was about mistletoe. Uh-huh. And along with like, along with stuff I knew, I always forget that mistletoe is like an invasive species. <laughs> Which, in a way, is sort of fitting. I mean, it's fitting. It's why it's a fertility, or why it was thought of as a fertility plant for like the longest time. Hmm. Except it's just poisonous. You know, as you do. Yeah. But anyway, Hayden. Hello. How are you? Hi, I'm pretty tired right now. I didn't get a, a ton of sleep last night, but I've been having a a good time. It's winter. You can tell because there's snow on the ground. Which is... And it's also uh, not just the snow. It also last night got to mm, 15 degrees. I'm pretty sure the snow is the only reason you can tell. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I'm... Just not used to seeing snow so much, even even in year three up here. It's still, uh, I can't help but like it. I mean... Eh. It gets That's... in the way, don't get me wrong. Yeah, snow is a really weird thing for me as someone who has lived up here for, you know, about a decade at this point. And has lived in places that have snowed before more than once. Uh... Like, have been known to snow, I should say. It's it's snowed in North Carolina, but, you know, the South and snow are fair-weather friends at best. Yeah. Uh, again, I think I said this last time. The snow is great. It's all the stuff about having to exist in a city when it snows that's that's kind of the frustrating part. Oh, yes. my My commutes have not gotten any more pleasant as a result of this. I can't imagine, especially because I used to live in Quincy. I literally used to live uh, like a five-minute bus ride or a 20-minute walk away from the Quincy Center Station, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure at this point you know at least kind of well. I've been through it a couple of times. Yeah, so I used to live in Quincy, and I was there a couple years ago when we had the super bad set of snowstorms. So there was a year where we got heavy snowstorms every three days for about three weeks wow and at one point the the red line above ground just kind of gave up that sounds about par for the course for the red line and so i visibly visibly i like viscerally remember getting on a shuttle bus at jfk umass and then taking two hours (sighs) Just to get to Quincy Center. So, that's where, like, winter becomes hard in Boston. <laughs> but the snow itself, like, especially the snow the past couple of days, has been, like, really, like, soft and very, very sort of gentle. It hasn't really been a snowstorm, per yeah. se. <clears throat> I'm always enamored with the first snow of the year. Um, or or a, a season. Like, the first snow when there's none on the ground. Because mm-hmm. that night, everything slows down just a little bit, and then um, lights just are reflecting off the fresh snow yes. so much more brilliantly. And you can walk anywhere, and it's the entire area is just glowing a little bit. Oh, yeah. That background kind of glow that a snowy night gives you, oh, I love it so much. Um. I was even commenting on that with my roommate, uh, like, during the snow a couple of days ago. It's just, like, it's a very specific, 
this is not the right word because this refers to music, but I still like using it. <laughs> it has a very specific timbre of light uh-huh. uh, that you don't really get in many other situations. Yeah, like, that's sort of like it's midnight and it's snowing and there's enough light in the sky that it's reflecting off all of the snow and it just makes it feel a bit like you're in uh, a slight fantasy world in a nice way. Yeah. Just a touch of magical realism in our actual lives. I think we all we all deserve that. The good magical realism, not like the not not like the ones that are like and that's how they all died. Yeah. Real real be careful what you wish for, that magical realism genre. Yeah. Um, so anyways, how are you? I am all Right. Uh, I swear to God, I had something. Oh, right. Okay. So not much news. So I think I'm going to start using this space to just talk about a thing recently I've enjoyed. That's fair. Cool. So I started listening to a new podcast called Let's Go Atsuko. Uh, or the full title is Let's Go Atsuko, a woke Japanese game show. Okay. Let's Go Atsuko is hosted by Atsuko Okatsuka, who is a comedian. I believe she's like LA based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how, when, when, when this is described as like a Japanese game show podcast, you may be wondering to yourself, how aren't those, aren't those shows usually full of physical challenges? Well, yes. <laughs> um, and, and to be fair, I actually, uh, as a side note, I recently watched a really good video about how. Japanese humor isn't actually like just physical comedy based, but that's kind of what we perceive since the only things that are really easy to translate from Japan to any English speaking country is physical comedy. Yes. But there is still a very specific niche of game show in Japan that are very like manic and exciting and loud and usually involve some sort of nearly impossible situation you have to overcome. Right. And I keep remembering the uh all of the gifts that went around online from the the one show where one object or piece of furniture in a room is made of chocolate and they have to figure out which one it is. Yes. Which is like it uh, a just like a wonderful concept for like something to watch. Like it's just it's so you really can't get mad at that. Yeah, uh, it's like it's much more wholesome than any given like fear factor or survivor challenge or whatever right because like god fear factor the idea of just watching someone do something they hate we're like yeah that that one about like is it chocolate is it's twofold and i will get back to atsuko but like japanese game shows have a really interesting and unique emotional center that game shows from other countries don't seem to be able to get at the same way at least not in the same direction case in point any japanese game show that has been translated into an american game show i would say usually it's because they add some sort of prize money yeah (laughs) and it sort of it changes what was a really interesting set of rules that any anyone quote unquote uh can play to a competition to be won and that's kind of hard when you're doing something like Silent Library. <laughs> I think the fun of that is watching six people just try to be really quiet while things that really are trying to get them to be loud try to get them to be loud. But anyway, going back to Atsuko, the translation of the manic, sometimes kind of ang- like f- fun anxiety of a Japanese game show is so beautifully translated into this podcast which includes games such as answer questions about your uh hold on it's a answer questions about your your old tweets while also answering questions about what you should pack for your bomb shelter (laughs) uh and so like on the one hand you have otsuko asking questions about the comedian that's on there, like their older tweets Uh, and not like weird revealing questions. Just like, what did you think of this movie you tweeted about two years ago? (laughs) 
depending on your answer to the tweet, you may need that bomb shelter sooner than later. It's true, but usually it's not aiming for that, but still. Yes. Uh, and then on the other hand, like the other co-host uh, is asking the contestant a series of like two choice, multiple choice questions about things that like FEMA says you should have in a fallout shelter. <laughs> and, and, and so like, this is the kind of game that's happening where it's partly an interview, partly getting to know someone, but then also it gets at that like weird anxiety of trying to do something that's a little bit impossible. <laughs> And God knows having two conversations at once is hard. Yes. Sometimes having one conversation at once is a challenge. That's very fair. My other favorite game on that, like recurring game on that, is called uh, Sing Into It. Which is, do you know in a musical when the music for the song comes in but they're still talking? Yes. They're, like, ramping up to sing, yeah, right? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, and often in there, there's a transition into, like, okay, and then I'm going to say something that's going to make more sense as I move into singing. So there's th this game on Let's Go Atsuko is that, except the scene is improvised and the people doing it don't know when the music's going to start vamping. <laughs> So they'll be and, and like they're they're given what songs they are beforehand and they're given like lyric sheets as well. It's not about like remembering the song. It's about trying to figure out how to nail that transition between speaking and singing. Yeah. And so they'll be talking and they're like just like a butcher shop or whatever. And then suddenly like someone has a Britney Spears song as one of their two songs they're gonna have to do, and you just hear like the '90s backbeat come in. <laughs> And you can hear in their voice a sudden, a sudden, very specific kind of panic setting. <laughs> As they're like, I have 10 seconds to figure this out. But like at the end, there's points, but no one wins anything. And like, it's really just, again, for the fact that it's fun to put on this sort of show. That's really great. That, that sounds quite enjoyable. I might have to add that to my list. It's been, it's been really great. If, if people listening, Listen to no other episode. There's a live episode in New York City. It's pretty recent in the podcast feed. It's great. Three amazing people are on the show, but also Atsuko's opening monologue fucking killed me. <laughs> There's a whole bit about like going down to to give a dog a hug and the dog starts licking your face and so she like opens her mouth and tongue touches tongue and it just goes from there. <laughs> how how deep is this feed? How many episodes? Uh, like 20 some odd okay so not too much to catch up on no and it's not like <laughs> it's not like you're gonna miss some sort of ancient lore if you don't listen to all 23 episodes of a game <laughs> show of course but, not but i'm i am a staunch completionist when it comes to my podcasts i hear you i, I i'm not <laughs> in, in 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 certain ways like when I started listening to My Brother, My Brother, and Me, it was already in the 300s, and I'm like, this was even before I knew that even the brothers didn't like the first 100 episodes. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to go fucking back, and I'll just figure it out. <laughs> yeah. No, anyway. I started with one. Y yikes. Even they would say yikes. <laughs> Aptly so. I think, uh, I think perhaps the fact that I started with one contributed to my growing confusion as to why so many people liked the show for a little while. You know, if that's your first, yeah, I would be, I would have been very confused as well if I listened to the first hundred episodes and then tried to figure out why people like Mabim Bam. Um, it's I guess like people... they're a little, they're, they're not without some good jokes and like fun bits. And you know, there is, there is a part of podcasting that I really enjoy that is, almost never the point of the podcast but where you just sort of get to know a couple people and like figure out what they're actually into and what some of their life stories are yeah though yes um i like that too it's like i try very hard not to fall into the sort of parasocial relationship thing but there is something about like when, when there is a new McElroy 
podcast in my feed or when um there's a couple others that are like from npr and whatnot where i've just i've listened to these people talk so much about the thing they're talking about that there is a comfort in not like the level of friends but there's a comfort in like there is something about listening to someone weekly or so whether it's a comedy podcast or a more serious one Mm -hmm. where if they're a good communicator, it's just a nice space to listen to someone talk about something. And in one case, you might learn something. In another case, you might laugh. But there is that, like, warmth of just, like, I know that this space is more or less going to be a good space. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to say, like, oh, these people are my friends or I know everything about them. But it is, it's a certain space in especially more freeform podcasts where it's interesting and it's nice to see people just gradually opening up. And it's like, um, this may not be a metaphor that works at all, but it's almost like a not shitty people magazine where instead of, like, all of their, like, secrets and stories being dragged out unwillingly from them and, like, made into tabloid headlines, it's people sharing their stories and their lives with other mm-hmm. people of their own volition. Yeah, it's, um... I... Okay, <laughs> we can't get into the fact that I have some... I have some, like, inside... Not inside knowledge, but... The whole People Magazine thing used to actually be more like what getting to know someone via podcasting is now. Yes. No, and I then didn't there was a... mean people specifically. I oh, meant... no, no, no. I wasn't. You're not <laughs> wrong. I was saying that there was a very specific point where the tone of people and thus the other celebrity magazines changed entirely. Yeah. But side note, we're like. 19 minutes into recording, so I don't have time to get into that. <laughs> right. So <laughs> Hey, it was a good conversation. I'm just like I'm I'm respecting your time as well. Right. Well, on the topic of snow and um breaking into song unexpectedly, let's talk yeah. about the nightmare before Christmas. Oh boy. This this film has so many songs so quickly that I noted that by the time the fourth song was starting, it was approximately where the fourth song would be ending if you were just listening to a music album. Well, yes. So as I was watching the film, it it finally dawned on me that honestly, there's not ju- there's just not a lot of dialogue in the film, period. There's really not. Uh Especially between uh, uh, Jack and um, um, Sally. They they have I... three lines together. Yeah. So, okay. Let's talk about Hot Topic Romances. <laughs> because we've kind of covered the three main ones at this point. Mm-hmm. So, sort of. We haven't really talked about Joker because fuck Joker. No, no Joker. Uh, thank you. But we talked about Harley, right? And, yes. and as such, we talked a little bit about the Joker. And we've talked about Gomez and Morticia. Right. And now we're on Jack and Sally. And look, I think it needs to be said up front. I watched the fuck out of this film when I was in high school. <laughs> I have a ton of emotional connection to this film. And I can never get rid like, I own those memories. Those memories are mine, and I get to own them forever. Yes. The, I, what love story? There, what? There's nothing. They, the, it they is, talk three times. She looks at him longingly every now and then. I mean, it's a short movie, but... it It is, but you can develop at least something close to a romantic relationship in in an hour like i've watched episodes of tv that did more footwork than this uh like okay so here's it's 
I understand, I think, pretty intimately as as someone who was a Hot Topic mall goth for a while. <laughs> I, like, I intimately understand the fact that, like, in high school, in middle school, when you see this, just, like, superficially, it, it, it can feel like a space where if you are not someone who fits into the quote-unquote mainstream crowds, mm-hmm. it does feel safer, right? Like, a movie that is framed on weird, like, on, like, the Halloween weirdness. Oh, uh, yeah. And has a certain strangeness to it, and we'll get into, we'll get into Burton's sort of, that's weird, because it's weird, too. So, did you know Burton didn't actually direct this? I think I had heard some, something to that equivalent. Right, so I always, I always thought Burton directed this film. It's based on a story Burton of his. Burton directed this film. I mean, yes. Uh, Henry Selick did the directing of this film, and Henry Selick is an amazing stop motion animator. He also did Coraline and several others. Uh, so I just I I think it's worth pointing out that this is actually not a Tim Burton film so much as a Tim Burton property. Right. Which I actually think does it some favors in, like, the third act. <laughs> but back to Jack and Sally. Yeah. And Hot Topic Romances. <laughs> so I have a question. I know you grew up in a pretty religious household. Yes. And weren't exposed to a lot of things at, like, earlier ages. That's correct. My my personal favorite is um, we weren't allowed to watch all dogs go to heaven because of the implication that non-humans had souls. <laughs> that, I'm that's sorry. True. I'm, not, I'm not laughing at you. Like, <laughs> no, it just... is, it is an absurd statement about my life. And also like the distance I have traveled as a person. <laughs> Absolutely. So did you have any access to like hot topic or hot topic stuff? Um, I mean, we had a mall that uh-huh. we would go to sometimes, and I would see the Hot Topic store, and I think I walked around inside it a couple of times. That's fu- okay. I think that's about it, though. I that's mean, fine. I also, like, I went to schools where we had, you know, khaki uniforms and red, white, or blue polos, and that was... What I, for america yeah yeah exactly <laughs> no that's uh, fair so I, just, I didn't I... get a lot of uh ability to to wear even if i had been able to choose hot topic i wouldn't have had much ability to wear it when i wanted that's totally fair um i don't know hot topic's such a it's a strange space uh and I don't know when I'm going to have – I don't want to do it in this episode, but, like, there's a point where I'm going to need to talk about, like, my connection to Hot Topic. It's <laughs> it's such a maligned store and honestly at times for very good reasons, but it did give me a space to find something that wasn't Southern Christian iconography, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, can help. Any, any buoy in a storm, really. <laughs> that is true. I That's think, not even... Yeah. I think Hot Topic is one of those weird things where it's, like, cultural impact is much greater and it's associated with much more things than the store itself actually ever touches on because it's a That's... relatively small chain. Uh... You say that it's owned by the Gap. Yeah, but still, like it, it is, it is, it's small in the sense that it doesn't have huge footprints, right? Right. Uh, but so, Rob Hot Topic for a reason. I'm gonna get back there. <laughs> Hot Topic was also the place where you could find like depictions of alternative romances, like. And I'm using heavy air quotes in this point, right? Alternative <laughs> romances, quote unquote. It was still very straight, right? Oh, but yes. I can't deny at the same time that as absolutely flat 
as the romance between Jack and Sally is. <laughs> like, so, like, just aggressively flat. They, I think before the final scene, they share exactly one word with each other. I think you're right. I think there is one sentence where he is getting Sally to craft his Santa suit. And he just sort of interrupts her a few times in that conversation. And that's it. Yeah. Got, mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I think what's worth looking at with Night Before Christmas is this idea in, that I've been knocking around my head of queer claiming. Yes. So I actually. And, go ahead. Sorry. I just, I actually really wanted to get your take on, is Jack right or is Jack wrong? And also, is this, is this a, a story about, like, almost unattempted uh, coming out of the closet in a way? Or is it a story about, like, cultural appropriation? Because it kind of seems like both. Yeah, so... <laughs> There are points in this movie where the metaphor gets mm, just horribly muddled. Yeah. Because, as you said, there's a point, especially in the, like, town meeting song, where it feels like the movie is trying to say something about cultural appropriation. Yes. But, like... But Jack's arc is that of a person who doesn't feel as though he belongs and feels almost as though something's wrong with him until he sees another place where what he feels is accepted and celebrated. Yes. It's... Except he doesn't even know that's what he feels until he sees it, right? Right. So, okay. <laughs> Jack Skellington is Tim Burton. You right. have to... I don't mean this just like, ah, because he wrote it. No, no, no. This movie came out in the late 90s. Uh-huh. And the late 80s and early 90s were basically when Tim Burton was at the peak of his power. He was unstoppable. He did the two Batman movies, which, you know, at the time, making a good superhero franchise movie uh, was nearly impossible. Again, they hadn't really done it since Superman in the 70s. Right. And so we have that, and then we have Beetlejuice, and we have uh, Edward Scissorhands. Sorry, uh, and several uh, you know several other movies in that time that were really well received and really big box office really big box office successes. And while this is not him directing, you can see how this being written by him and then coming out at this time. Jack is loved by literally everyone in the t the town cannot function without Jack being there. He Jack disappears for one day and it falls to pieces. Everyone just like lays around and cries. <laughs> everyone loves him and then he goes off and he's fucking sad about it. And I'm like, "God, I'm sorry it's so hard to be loved, Timothy." I understand that there is a pressure to perform when you are doing, when you are being really well, when you are being lauded by the, the culture at large. Yes. There is a pressure to like keep performing at a certain level, but there are a couple ways you can go with that. Right. <laughs> For instance, Lin-Manuel Miranda has said in interviews, he already knows what the first line on his tombstone is going to be. <laughs> So what else can he do with his life, right? Yeah. And so, you know, at the height of his powers, Miranda's like, well, now I can kind of do the weird shit. I can do stuff that's a bit more idiosyncratic and a bit more out there because I, I'm fucking covered. <laughs> Hamilton has me covered. <laughs> but Tim Burton wrote this character of Jack who's like oppressed by the amount of love around him right and seeks something else and so goes on a fucking year walk in the woods <laughs> stumbles on the doors to all the other holidays which are we say they all there is implications in this movie that the holidays are all affecting earth and yet they don't know about each other yeah it that's not really a... I don't know if we can... 
the if geography that point, of this film is confusing. It is because there's also like whenever, whenever the one time that Jack goes to Christmas World, Christmas Land, Christmas Town. I don't. We don't see the doors going back, and there's like no. I don't know. I it, I understand that I'm nitpicking like a movie that partially is for kids, and thusly some of this stuff is fine to be hand waved, but still, <laughs> it is hard for it was hard for me not to watch this entire film as a, like a fucking tortured artist being <laughs> being frustrated that people like his stuff too much, uh, and. I don't, I don't know. Like that, that's just like it. Tam, if you want to go make Christmas movies about normal happy people, you can do that. No one's stopping you. Yeah, that's the thing I really got from this, and also got from um, a video I had watched some time ago about Tim Burton that I watched again for this, where it's just like, no one's holding you to this, Tim. <laughs> I think. There, there is a, a through line through this entire film of this idea that like he's not allowed to do a Christmas film or like broadly he's not allowed to interact with the quote unquote mainstream kind of aesthetic and he has to stay the pumpkin king. Right, right. Dude, fucking do whatever you want. You, you can. It's fine. So, I, I also want to know. I also want to get your take. Is this a happy ending? Because we we start out and we see we see the Jack tortured by love and who just doesn't want to be doing what he's doing anymore. Mm-hmm. And then he goes out, he tries Christmas, he fails miserably, um, partially because he's sort of like taking it on but not respecting the the core of it and partially because like he's unable to convey to the people around him what this is supposed to mean to to him and to others Mm -hmm. and then at the end he he fully embraces his role as the pumpkin king again and he's like oh that christmas stuff i'm done with that santa you can go be mr christmas and i will be the pumpkin king again and well, it's a weird character arc. It is. So there is actually, I'm sure I'm going to keep dragging parts of this movie throughout this podcast, but I actually also really appreciate the third act of this film a lot mm-hmm. because <clears throat> we have this movie where this one dude is so absolutely single-minded about wanting to make people understand and then do something that he only saw once. (laughs) Yes. But I think there is also a certain way to read this film that gets at the joy of failure. And I think about the scene in the graveyard uh, after Jack has been shot down by the fucking military. Right. Uh, And, he has this like mournful song for a little bit, but like I'm dead. It's it's over. Mm-hmm. And then it changes and he starts singing about how, well, I fucking tried and, and that could go in a really dark way of like, I tried. And so people should respect me for that. Yeah. But instead it goes, I tried. And the fact that I tried is, is, is a chat as a, um, is a thing worth championing in and of itself. Now, of course, he fucked up and then has to go unfuck up the problems he caused. Right. But he realizes that the problem, his, like, ennui was not from, it wasn't from Halloween itself being boring. It was that he was not challenging himself within the space he was working. So I think that there actually is a kind of happy ending, and one could even suppose that the Halloween after this movie is over, like within the, within the, the movie's world, right? Right. The Halloween after they might find a way to do a scary wintry Halloween instead of their normal thing. Right. I could see it becoming a situation where 
the appropriation isn't really the point anymore, and it it actually becomes an understanding of what you know Christmas and wintry holidays kind of feel like, and how you can subvert that. All right. Uh, but I have a question for you. Okay. Because I've also been talking a good bit. I <laughs> I waffled a lot on the character of Sally. Yes. And I I kind of just want your feelings on Sally before I give my feelings on <laughs> Sally. Uh, I think we're going to agree on certain points, but there's something I want to bring up. But what's your just take on Sally? Um, I mean, Sally is... Sally is the only smart character in this movie. Yes. And no one <laughs> listens to her. Which is very, very frustrating. Um, and it's like it, she's smart, and then like for the two, the three lines he gets, Santa is smart. Yeah, Santa. <laughs> Santa's done with all of this shit. Yeah, Santa's just out. But yeah, Sally is the the person who immediately sees what Jack is doing as something that is taking another another person's holiday and uh perverting it basically in Mm -hmm. a way that's not going to work out for earth or for jack yeah like it's going to be bad all around and she sees that a million miles away um and i think that's interesting um i also am confused as to why you would keep letting someone who has poisoned you three times make your food Uh, more than that that entire like inventor character i don't understand why she has to stay inside i don't i she clearly can function outside easily (laughs) and and i don't mm, that's a i don't i don't even know how to unpack that relationship it's a very Uh, weird like overprotective paternal sort of thing that he has towards her that's yeah it a yeah bad it, relationship but i, I recognize something in that about yeah i uh <laughs> i just there's a whole lot to unpack in that relationship and i don't think we could do that justice in the 30 minutes we have left in this recording <laughs> so I'm going to just, like, put a pin in that one for you, the audience, of, like, someone has probably said a lot more on that relationship than we have and probably better as well. So, like, ugh. Yeah. But. Sally. <laughs> just fucking speak up. I'm. So, yeah. The entire movie, I was just, like, you know that something is wrong. You literally had a prophetic vision. But the thing Say is. Say some. <laughs> Sally comes from a place where speaking up is not rewarded. Speaking up is what earns her, like, uh, punishment, and no one listens to her anyways. So That's fair, but... Coming from that perspective, what she appears to try to do is try to use her other tools, which are sabotage, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, but... To... Which is great. Um, the fucking rogue over here. <laughs> just filling the entire town with mist so that uh, the sleigh can't take off. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's sad that she doesn't feel she has the capacity to speak up. Um, or that the movie doesn't address that. It, and very sad that the movie doesn't address it. But it does feel like... It feels like a authentic character decision and it's a little sad the the movie didn't give her more room but i i think her character is internally consistent and i have no problems with her for that yeah like i don't have problems with her it's more that like the writer choice of like this is the woman this is the character she's going to be yeah which i know like oh complaining over stuff that isn't happening is is whatever like it 
every choice in a fictional story is a choice <laughs> by the writer as much as the character. Uh, and on the same on the same topic, though, and this is the thing about Sally that I noticed while watching it, mm-hmm. is there's actually a little bit more nuance to her character, but only when she gets to sing. It's it's so easy to think of Sally's song as a sort of like sad torch song. Uh, do you know what a torch song is? Uh, no, not exactly. Okay, that's okay. It is a specific genre of. I mean, yes, I do, but maybe our listeners won't. Hayden, it's fine to not know things. No, it's not. I know everything. No. <laughs> okay, go on. You were saying. Right. So a torch song is a very specific kind of love song that is usually uh, characterized by pining mm-hmm. and by, quote unquote, holding a torch for someone. Yeah. It, it, it's often the like, you're in a relationship already, but I'll be here for you forever. Uh, there are quite a few singers that basically made their fucking careers on singing torch songs. Anyway, yes. Sally's song on like first or second blush just kind of comes off as a sad torch song of like, I love you and you'll never love me back. (laughs) But I think watching it this time, especially with some of the, some of the stuff I primed my brain with. Yeah. There's a, there's a level of like weird acceptance in it of like, it's not just he'll never love me. It's more, Oh, he has a relationship and his relationship is whatever the fuck he's doing right now. (laughs) He's in a relationship with himself. And, like, I kind of, I wish that had been explored more. Because Sally is not an unintelligent character. Like, as a character, she's very smart. She is, again, the smartest one in this film. By a mile. Exactly. And, and, And she, honestly, like, I don't. I can't even call what Jack does to her mistreatment because I don't think Jack even recognizes that she is trying to get his attention. Because he's so consumed with work. And this sort of relationship I saw work a lot better in a musical called Sunday in the Park with George, which is about art and creating art. Uh, And there is a character in the first act that finally calls out the artist for paying more attention to making art than this person that he's supposedly in love with. And I, I just wish Sally had gotten a moment to be like, Hey, by the way, Jack, <laughs> <laughs> I've been like trying to talk to you for mm, months now. <laughs> it's, it's so frustrating because no one is telling Jack that he needs to listen to anyone else. He is surrounded by enablers, except for Sally, who is the one who is at least portrayed as being the one who cares for him the most. Yes. Which is interesting, right? It's caring for someone is not just always being there to tell them yes and to do what they want. I mean, I think the movie does make a bit of a case for that. It does. Uh, I mean, heck, we were talking, what, yesterday about this kind of stuff? <laughs> but, like, there, there is a certain through line, and I think at times it's shaky, but there's a through line in this film that is kind of questioning the validity of auteur theory. Where, where again, it's like, sometimes you fucking need someone to tell you no. Yeah. Uh, as an artist, like, George Lucas didn't like just birth the original trilogy of star Wars whole cloth out of his head. (laughs) And in fact, a lot of the tone of those of four through six in star Wars were set by Marsha Lucas, the, his at the time wife who was doing the editing. And there were other people too. Like it wasn't just the two of them that made star Wars what it is, but Look at look at episodes one through three where Lucas didn't have anyone to tell him no. The shit, like the tonal shift, just yeah. like you can tell that someone didn't tell him no on one through three. <laughs> and, 
And in four through six, at times, Marsha was probably like, mm, this doesn't work and we're not going to do it. <laughs> Why, yeah. Marsha? Because it's bad and it doesn't help your vision, <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> I, I'm sure there are no shortage of creators we could just send sit here and spend the next hour listing names of oh they're yes. good when people are around them to tell them no and they often happen to be white dudes uh not all the time some not all <laughs> and not all of them are straight though most of them are straight but you know outliers <laughs> uh but yeah so like i i think this ca- this movie does make some really interesting cases for what it means to be an artist and often the the fact that having no limitations on the art you make can be sometimes as oppressive as having too many limitations yes and sometimes you need someone to be like "Mm, we need to like pull that back a little pull that back a little bit or maybe try a different angle or just someone that's on your level that is just like no 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 you're going too far again. Right. Well, I would I would like to take uh, a little bit here towards the end to talk uh, more about Jack as sort of like a queer figure. Yeah. Because there was a lot there was a lot that I picked out. Obviously, I mentioned earlier the opening and we struggle with the metaphor of this movie because I don't think it knows what its metaphor is. <laughs> yes. But we start out with him feeling as though he does not belong, and then we go through several scenes of him feeling ennui. And as as you've mentioned, I think probably this is a reflection of Tim Burton uh, feeling as though he cannot <laughs> make like, nice, quote-unquote, nice movies. Right, yeah. But... It's also sort of something you can read as Jack feeling like he does not belong in the place where he is born. And he is, he lives there and they tell him what he's supposed to be. And they celebrate that about him, but something about it feels off to him. And then we get, we get vignettes. We get the, what's this song where, what's this, what's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? There's music everywhere. What's this? Again, I I sang along with every fucking song in this film, so I these, can't. These songs can't, are really I, good. I mean, it's because it's Danny Elfman, and I love Oingo Boingo, and I really enjoy Danny Elfman's compositions. Even though at this point, in in twenty nineteen, Danny Elfman's compositions have kind of become a parody of his own compositions. But that's a different podcast. <laughs> but yeah, the um. Another thing that uh, that really struck out to me was uh, when Jack brings back all of the, like, Christmas-y things and tries to explain them to Halloween Town, and no one quite gets it. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a very interesting scene to me, because Jack is filled with all of this excitement and joy, and he is trying to share the joy of this new discovery, um, of this personal discovery, and people are supportive but they don't get it (laughs) which is not an unfamiliar coming out story i think yeah Um, i mean (laughs) if i may for a moment oh absolutely my mom asked me if i was gay and i said yes at that time like i was comfortable enough with my mother that i knew i could Mm -hmm. and then there was definitely this weird expectation shift where like she would say things sometimes that weren't mean and weren't like microaggressiony, but were worries that she has probably had since like the mid seventies, as far as like living one's life as a queer person. Yeah, it it wasn't that she was uh, like she was worried about me, not like she thought what I was doing was bad. Except her worries were a very sort of like going to a bathhouse kind of worry (laughs) and i'm like mom it's the 2000s and i'm 16 (laughs) and we live in north carolina there's not a bathhouse (laughs) so yes when jack brings all of the christmas stuff back and tries to explain it and you see people honestly trying to parse it 
but it being so out of their realm that they can only parse it through other things they already know. Right. And so, yeah, you get this thing where he just gets more and more frustrated. Like, that's not what I mean, but, like, kind of. The movie doesn't really start going down a bad path until he he get, gives in and decides to start describing things not how he honestly perceives them, but in ways that he thinks the others will get it more. We'll call him Sandy Claus. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Hi, I'm a living soundboard. <laughs> but yeah, and then I also clocked the scene, which is his second time speaking to Sally, mm-hmm. uh, where she's given him the the Santa suit, and he's trying it on, and uh, she has the line... Uh, Give me just a second. Take your time. She has the line, you don't look like yourself. And he responds, isn't that wonderful? It, and like, that line really jumped out at me. Uh, for fairly self-explanatory reasons, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, hmm. it, it, it's also part of why I like, ended this movie really confused as to whether or not it was a happy ending whether or not it ends with jack burying a part of himself yeah like that's the that's the weird problem is that ending kind of there's a lot of tonal shift between act two and act three yes (laughs) and i agree with you uh with with the reading of jack and I think, again, this goes back to a certain aspect that I I think I saw as well as, uh, as a younger me mm-hmm. uh, and this idea of queer claiming where sometimes while we can – while we as queer folk can always strive to support people making directly queer media, especially when we were younger and we didn't have access to that, you kind of have to read your own queer narrative into things. Yeah. I mean, that's what this whole thing is about, really. Oh, exactly. But, like, but specifically with, like, this, which doesn't, I would say any of the sort of queer stuff in it is the sub of subtext. Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, But it doesn't make it less legitimate. And I think partly that's because art is interpretive. So what someone gets from a piece of art is just as honest as what the creator intended. Right. Uh, And often sometimes more honest. (laughs) Uh, But more than that, it's, it's if, if that is where you read a queer narrative and that helps you as a queer person when you're younger, sort of even just have a slight vocabulary to start describing what you're feeling. Yeah. I don't, inherently think that's bad either i mean again i'm older now and i can look at this movie a little bit more critically but i also there is still the theater kid in me that was ready to sing every single song and you know in i think one of the things i wrote down was part of me still avails to be jack skellington or at least to borrow a little of that voice and charisma (laughs) and our our influences as people can very easily be very messy because a lot of our influences were before we had the ability to make conscious or like consciously ethical decisions on what we're watching. And not that I think this is a terribly unethical (laughs) film, but clearly there's like, there are things in it that we're critiquing that are not perfect. Right. And that's okay. Loving and critiquing can go hand in hand and often should, but there is that thing of like, I own my memories with it. You own your memories with it. Everyone owns their memories with media that maybe isn't the best. And that's important because that just makes you who you are. Uh, and, you know, the hard part there is learning to be introspective and learning to know when, like, n- learning to know what to take from things that influence us. But, you know, like reading reading a queer story in in a piece of media that isn't queer not only is partly just being a queer person in the world in 2019 right 
or being a queer person in the world period but also like <laughs> it's it's not un- it's not dishonest well well said <laughs> yeah do do you have anything else on this this was a quick film it it was i mean it's like an hour and some change uh, i have a few quick notes mm-hmm. and then i have one other like thing i want to talk about and a, a video recommendation for people so the one thing i wrote was jack skellington is a fuck boy okay i mean not gonna fight you on that he is that's just it that's just it he's a fuck boy uh, <laughs> the the three fu- uh, lock stock and barrel yes the trick-or-treaters don't ever get their comeuppance <laughs> and it is kind of frustrating <laughs> Well, who's the antagonist of this film? Because I mean, uh, the antagonist of this film is the protagonist of this film. Yeah, like, we didn't even get into Oogie Boogie, and quite honestly, I don't have time to unpack that cultural <laughs> baggage right now. Oogie Boogie literally doesn't have to be in this film. <laughs> It is, he is only brought into the film because Jack needs someone to go kidnap the Santa Claus. <laughs> like, he couldn't just go and ask the dude. He'd be like, nope, steal him. He he exists almost not at all throughout most of the film. And where he appears towards the end of the third act is purely so that there is some struggle to set things right when Jack realizes he messed up. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean that's that's I sort think of also his narrative a, purpose. That's fair, and especially also because otherwise the movie wouldn't really have a villain song, and this was the period of time where Disney really loved a fucking villain song. And I love a villain song too, but I'm just oh, saying. God. Be uh, prepared. Yeah. Uh. But but so the other thing I want to talk about is more broadly my my like changing feelings on Tim Burton, and I'll keep this pretty brief. There is a video that I encourage uh, all of our listeners to go watch, which is called Looking for Meaning in Tim Burton's Movies by a YouTuber named Maggie Mae Fish. And I, I think I think the, the part I want to bring away from this and then sort of present to our audience is a lot of the video revolves around using a very specific line. Uh, Using a very specific line from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Tim Burton's version. Yes. Which is, at one point, they're in the glass elevator. And uh, Charlie says, candy doesn't have to have a point. That's why it's candy. And Maggie Mae Fish uses this to sort of uh, tie together the the frustration she was having while watching certain, you know, a, a series of movies by Burton. Uh, and this started when she was like, when she was going to finally watch Beetlejuice. And, you know, a lot of the people who she asked about it were like, oh, I love Beetlejuice. It was so wacky and whatever. Right. And then she watched it. And, like, Beetlejuice, the character, is, like, really non consenty Very much so. Uh, and so... That spurred her to do this very big exploration of um, a certain subset of Tim Burton films, but like his earlier work, I would say. (laughs) And there's a lot of discussion in it about how he will take imagery from like German expressionist films. Uh, Your sort of like early silent films from Germany that had lots of sharp angular shadows and really big uh, expressionist style uh, sets, but he doesn't actually imbue them with the sort of angst, the, 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 the oppressiveness, and actually honestly takes it and just recuperates it into being a fun thing to put into his films. Right. I can, and again, I can see that in what I, what I think of when I think of Burton films. And there's other things, too, about, like, Burton has this unspoken love affair with the nuclear family suburbia. And often in his films, that version of suburbia goes unquestioned. And I think even in Night Before Christmas, you can see this with 
the the king of Halloween getting really obsessed with very specifically Christmas, which yes. is presented in a very sort of like 1950s, 60s kind of way. There, there's a there's a very clear, not direct, but a very clear nod to like Rankin and Bass in at least some of the wintry character designs. Uh, famous stop motion animators for for Christmas films. Ah, yes, very famous. Mm-hmm. I, they did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the not Frosty the Snowman, um, but they did the Rudolph films and they did uh, several, also several Easter Bunny films. We're we're a uh, audible. We're about to watch one of theirs. <laughs> so, watching this film after having reprimed myself with Maggie's video, it was interesting to watch and sort of pick apart these sort of aspects of the longing for a certain idealized version of middle America that I I, I think is easy to interpret Burton as a person always feeling shut out from. But unfortunately, some of that then translates into his movies depicting the idea that outcasts inherently want to be part of the society that shooed them away. (laughs) This is less of a thing. That that's, a theme i think Sorry, yeah go on. no it's okay this is less of something that shows up in nightmare and more of something you see in like edward scissorhands but that feeling is still there because jack wants to be like accepted by the by the christmas community <laughs> and he does that by like trying to show how to do it better his his films seem to have a weird running theme of not only like outcasts preferring like society and what society gives and wanting to be like longing to be quote unquote normal mm-hmm. almost over things like chosen family yeah there's um there's a really beautiful stark uh difference not difference there's a really beautiful moment in the maggie may fish video where she talks about harry belafonte who we see in we we see appear musically in Beetlejuice at the dinner scene where we have all of these white people and one mm-hmm. Asian person lip syncing to a Harry Belafonte song just kind of like because it's funny. Yeah. Two years prior, <laughs> John Waters made Hairspray, and there is a scene in that film where two very um, self self-involved white artists do a very conceptual art show while one of them sings Harry Belafonte Mm -hmm. and considering the like the sort of 1950s 60s idealized idea that uh, Burton goes for Belafonte was a mm, a challenging radio play like there was a lot of hemming and hawing over playing Harry Belafonte, a man of Caribbean descent on American radio waves. And so, yeah, that's like what Burton probably heard when he was a kid, but then you see it put into the mouths of white people. (laughs) And considering Burton doesn't really have a lot of other people of color in his films, those sort of things were like, Burton doesn't quite question things the way I think it would be nice if he did. <laughs> uh, and Maggie Mae Fish gets into that in her video, and I I suggest people watch it. It 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 helped me reframe Burton in a way where I don't I still like the movies of his that I watch, but I have a much more nuanced and complex opinion of him. That's all. It's a good vi- and it's just a good video essay and in general Maggie Mae Fish does good video essays. Well, I think that kind of wraps up our talk on Nightmare. Yes. So, hey Hayden, what's next on the gay agenda? Well, uh since we did dip into Rankin and Bass a little bit today, thought uh we might start next time with the life and adventures of Santa Claus. Hayden says as if he knows anything about this film. 
I've seen this film, thank you. Have you? Yes, I'm pretty sure I saw this as on the TV as a kid. Oh. I'm sure I, I thought everyone had. I thought it was one of those that makes the rounds around Christmas time. It is, but it's definitely one of the more rare ones. Like, you see a lot of, uh, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town, or even the year without a Santa Claus, which has Heat Miser and Snow Miser. Uh, or you have, like, the Rudolph ones. This one's odd. It's the last one that Rankin and Bass made. And it's also based on an L. Frank Baum book. So, we're going to be talking about the life and adventures of Santa Claus. But also kind of just about Santa. Yeah. I mean, Santa is a figure. Don't Santa know is he's... a fig. <laughs> I don't know if he's quite... Uh monstrous or villainous as compared to what we usually dip into but um i mean one could say he's he's elven or sylvan at least you know perhaps not monstrous but he is a mythical creature yes mythical is true very much so. and and even more we're gonna have to have the talk hayden so if you'd like to get in we're gonna have to have a talk about the we're going to have to have a talk about the word daddy. So, if you want to talk to us about Santa or about Jack Skellington or whatever, you can reach us at IODM Podcast on Twitter or at I Only Date Monsters at monsterpit.net on Mastodon. You can also reach out to us over email at IOnlyDateMonsters at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to reach me directly, I'm at Lunastopheles, both on Twitter and on Snoutson Online, which is a Mastodon server. And if you want to reach out to me directly, go on a year walk through the woods. Come to the clearing of trees with various symbols carved in their trunks and open the door with the, the fire on it. That'll be me. What holiday is that? That's the fire holiday. That's not a thing. <laughs> not for you. Sure. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think that about wraps it up. So, you know, honestly, I have nothing funny to say here. Go listen to She Wants Revenge's version of Kidnap the Sandy Claws because they turned it into a four-on-the-floor house disco number. It's great. The end. <laughs> wow. Okay, yeah. We'll, we'll look into that, I guess. Yeah. And until next time, that that thing you just said it. I I, I, I guess Jack Skellington is nothing but bone. Roommates have started vacuuming, so I think it's time to start. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Let's let's wrap up. Closing out a little bit. Yes. <laughs>